Hello and welcome to the special Christmas and New Year episode of Georgia Detail, the podcast about the world of big data, analytics and data warehousing. And I'm your host, Mark Ripman. This week, I'm pleased to be joined on the show by Robin Moffat, head of R&D at Ripman Mead, and who many of you will know from his blogs, conference presentations and social media posts. And of course, he's an old colleague of mine from when I used to work there. Robin, welcome to Georgia Detail, and it's great to have you on the show. Why don't you introduce yourself properly to our listeners? Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Mark. It's a great honor. So I'm a head of R&D, as you say, at Ripman Mead, and I've worked there for about five years now. Before that, I worked in a, a UK retailer on their Oracle data warehousing platform with uh, OBIE as well. Before that, for my sins, I was a SQL Server DBA, and going even further back, I started off as a, a COBOL programmer with a, a DB2 data warehouse. So I've worked in data and analytics for about 15 years now. Uh, so kind of long enough to have seen cycles come and go and to be fairly cynical when people uh, proclaim things certain to have uh, to, to have died or be coming up soon. So it's uh, interesting to see how things go. Excellent. Well, it's great to have you on, Robin. And what we're going to do in this uh, special extended edition of Real to Detail is we're going to do kind of two parts. In the second half, we're going to look back at 2016, a couple of, you know, look back at some things that happened, get your opinion on a few kind of uh, trends and, uh, and, and kind of new products and things that came out. And also uh, get your views really on, on what you think will be interesting and, uh, and worth looking out for in 2017 in BI and data warehousing and so on. But what I want to do in the first half is, is actually have a chat about uh, a series of blog posts that you put on the Ripman Me blog over the last few days about a project you did with a client to evaluate um, what it'd be like to move uh, their BI system or, or to look at how you could move their BI system to uh, public cloud and adopt some of the new open source technologies like Spark and Kafka and so on. So I thought it was kind of interesting set of posts there and, and I'd like to kind of go through it with you. I suppose just to kind of get your feel for where the benefits were, you know, what worked, what didn't work and, and so on. But just to start off then, can you just kind of give us an overview really of, of what the project was about um, and what were you trying to achieve and understand with this with this piece of work? Yeah, sure. So this clients, they, uh, they contact us and they were, they're interested, as you say, in, in what kind of benefits they could have um, in moving some of their work. At the moment, they're uh, an Oracle shop. Um, they've got Oracle Data Warehouse, Oracle Data Integrator and so on. Um, and they have a, a batch process that they, they load uh, chunks of data into their Oracle Data Warehouse. And they were struggling in terms of uh, performance, in terms of query, kind of going back over long periods of time. So kind of the, the big data thing kind of came into play there. They're wondering about uh, if those technologies could help them. And then also in terms of uh, cost benefits, it, um, if perhaps moving into to open source tooling, uh, like you say with Spark, uh, could help them out there. So we did a, a short proof of concept with them to explore the different technologies with them and help them understand which ones may be more relevant and also kind of the um, the pitfalls around them or the additional complications. Um, a lot of the time with the technologies, you get the kind of the, the jigsaw approach of, well, you can use this plus this plus this, and that would be great. But sometimes what that doesn't show are the kind of the problems or the um, the tricky bits um, in actually implementing it. So that was also included in the scope of what we did. Mm, yeah, and, and I think, although, although you obviously mentioned Oracle in the, um, <clears throat> in the kind of intro to it, I think, you know, it's fair to say that a lot of um, traditional kind of BI and data warehousing shops are, are using any kind of database technology, Teradata, IBM, and so on, are looking to see, I suppose, really, you know, can we move this into the cloud? Can we adopt these big data technologies? How does it work? And, and how much... I suppose additional kind of manual work and, 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 and kind of like scripting and so on is involved. So um, so you did this on, on the Amazon cloud, didn't you? So you did it on uh, Amazon EMR, is that correct? Tell us about what that is and, and, and kind of why you adopted that rather than say sort of, you know, running the, the project using say in-house kind of Hadoop. 
Yeah, sure. So the clients, um, as well as being an Oracle shop, were already on Amazon Cloud. So they ran a lot of their stuff on on Amazon's um, EC2 servers. Um, so they were kind of they were already cloud friendly. It wasn't a case of convincing them that cloud was a good place to be running this stuff. Um, so since they were Amazon um, and we were looking at Hadoop, uh, Amazon's uh, Elastic Map Producer is the obvious place to be running it. Okay, so so Amazon, so Elastic Map Produce, tell us what that is then. So I, what's the difference between that and and kind of traditional Hadoop? If we, you know, what, how does the Elastic part come into it? What does it do there? So EMR is um, Amazon's Hadoop uh, as a service, um, and it's brilliant because you you can literally click on it and it'll provision a Hadoop cluster for you um, of any configuration size that you want. Um, so in terms of installing and configuration, there isn't any. Mm-hmm. Um, so even with uh, Cloud Ares distribution, you have to install it, and there are wizards, and it's kind of it's pretty easy to do. But you still have to go through and click on things, and if it falls over, go and look at log files. Whereas with EMR, you go to the Amazon uh, web page and you click on I want a server, I want a cluster this size, and it just goes and provisions it. So it's very very simple to use. Um, and the other bit that's kind of quite attractive about it is that you can spin it up and down as you want to on demand. So you don't have to um, build your cluster and then it's sat there and you're paying for it, whether on local tin or cloud tin. Um, you can spin up an EMR cluster, run a job, and then shut it down again and just pay for the time that you're using it. Okay, okay. So let, let's start by, you said in, in on the series of blog posts, and what we'll do is we'll put the links to the blog posts um, in the show notes for the uh, for the podcast. But so you, you said there were two parts to it. There was uh, ETL offload, or, or certainly doing the ETL in the cloud, and there was a part with querying. Okay, so both of those are interesting. But mm-hmm. let, let's start with the ETL bit. So my understanding is the client currently uses an ETL tool to do to do the work at the moment on premise, and but you would you moved it all into Hadoop and you moved it into Spark and so on. So so tell us about that. What how did you do it? What was involved in, and so on. So we took a very small piece of the ETL work that they do that was simply taking uh, inbound batch files that arrived every half hour or so and joining them with some reference data that came from a a relational table. And again, for the scope of the exercise, we actually took that um, reference data, again, just onto a simple local file. Um, And we built out a a project using PySpark, which would load both the files and then do the necessary joins um, and enrichments as well between the data sets and then write it out to a CSV file. So it was, it was very, very simplistic, but deliberately so, so that we didn't get bogged down in the detail of, um, of implementations. So we start off by uh, building a, a local development environment using Docker, which in the way that's EMR in the cloud is brilliant because you can just create an environment with a single click. Docker, we managed to find an image that was a, um, a Spark environment with a Jupyter Notebooks. So use that for local development of the code and prototyping. And also the benefit of notebooks, you can actually um, write out and explain how you're building something which was useful for the clients when we uh, handed this back to them. Um, and then we took that Spark code and then ran it up on uh, EMR um, on Amazon. So... So, so you say that you, you wrote all the code in, in, in PySpark and, and, uh, and so on there. Is this not going back to the old days of kind of scripting data warehouses and so on there? I mean, forgetting the fact that, that you know, is, is this not a step backwards, really? Arguably so. Um, that's one of the kind of conclusions that I mentioned at the end of that blog series, is that it's technically possible to do it like this. Should you build your whole ETL platform on a bunch of scripts? Probably not. Um, 
I think something that's interesting about the, the way that technology is changing is that you can take a much more granular approach to how you build things. And for something like this, do you need a full-blown ETL um, system for it? No, because it's very simple what's being done. And if you can then reduce your costs by doing the on-demand through AMR, that may well out, outweigh kind of the, the kind of the long-term maintenance and support benefits that you have from a, a more full-blown ETL tool. Um, but certainly you wouldn't write by hand all of this stuff um, on a large scale. That's And people have done that for years and years and years. And I've kind of, I started off doing that before ETL tools really existed. And you end up with an absolute maintenance nightmare and uh, very dependent on local staff who know the systems and it's it's difficult to scale. Okay, okay. I mean, certainly, I mean, it, let's, let's be clear, it was a prototype. From looking at the blog post, it was a prototype, it was a proof of concept. And therefore, Absolutely, a lot yeah. of these things, you know, they happen on scripts and so on. It was also about understanding the technology. So mm. certainly for me, before you adopt a tool that's going to maybe generate the code under the covers, you want to know kind of what's going on with this technology so that if you have to support it or simply from a performance point of view understanding is it going to scale or um, validating the technology choice that underpins some of the more uh, automated platforms that you might get okay i mean certainly as you and i both know uh, tools like oracle data integrator i'm sure you know other tools as well will, will generate PySpark code so so yeah. um, I, I guess as you're saying you know it's about understanding how it works at a low level and so on but again it, what is interesting working in this kind of area and seeing I suppose from the product side, seeing seeing kind of like how products are built with this, it's it's generally the case now that people do code stuff, don't they? As opposed to using ETL tools, it's quite rare, I think, in in practice to see ETL tools in a big data environment. Still, I mean, maybe that's a maturity thing. I don't know. I think it is a maturity thing. I think uh, like ODI, Oracle Data Integrator, is now catching up and kind of, as you say, can generate PySpark code and the latest releases. You can now do Spark streaming and stuff. But those technologies at root have been out for several years now. So I think companies that are looking to adopt this new technology as it comes out to take advantage of its benefits, you have no option but to write it by hand. But I think in the long run, um, a, a managed approach to generating your code is always going to win out at large scale. But sometimes that, that kind of long-term payoff um, is uh, is countered by the short-term benefit of being able to take advantage of the technology immediately. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I and mean, I think it's, it's classic. It's, people very rarely do do prototypes using ETL tools. If you can script it in five minutes, you will sort of do that. Um, yeah. So, so and as the project gets more mature and you have more developers in the project, that's when ETL tools are useful. I mean, the other part is cost as well. I mean, presumably this didn't cost an awful lot to kind of get running really and 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 whereas if you were to use I mean, most of the etl tools out there that will work with, with big data are quite expensive how much was cost an issue in this really it was one of the drivers from the clients um and wanting to look at these uh, open source technologies was uh, the current license commitments and also in terms of the technologies so we looked at odi it's got a um a big data licensing option which the client were were less keen to adopt it wasn't that uh, they ruled it out, but can we do this without that? Was kind of one of the the premises for the uh, the prototype. Mm. So, um, so we'll get on to. I'd like to talk a bit a bit later on about um, some of the new ETL technologies and things coming out of Amazon, like Glue, for example. I mean, that's quite interesting. But you mentioned in the uh, in the uh, in, in the blog post about using Spark SQL. Where, where did that come into it, and what role did Spark SQL um, perform within the kind of ETL process? So we used uh, PySpark for the, the set-based processing for joining the data sets and, and reading them in and writing them out and so on. Um, but we used Spark SQL simply because SQL is kind of my, my language background um, for immediately inspecting the data 
So it's as we were building them and preparing them. Um, so it's kind of like the best of both worlds. You didn't have to write it out and then query it separately to kind of check the, the data conditions have been validated and so on. You could actually do it in flight as part of the code. Mm, okay, okay. So so, so when, once you'd processed it using Spark, and I guess Spark was the kind of data processing layer with this, you, you said in the blog that you loaded it into Redshift. I mean, how'd that go really? Yeah, so one of the things that I found fascinating in doing this was that um, for the past 15 years, as I say, I've been working in this, you always process data and then you write it to a database. Mm. Whereas with this new set of technologies, that's no longer kind of like a default uh, pattern. You can actually look at writing it out, uh, which is what we did, into S3. And then from there, you can load it into Redshift, which is one thing that we did. Um, but you can also look at querying it in place, which I found fascinating. Mm. Um, in terms of Redshift, loading it from S3 was very, very simple. Um, you just write your, uh, it's a, a copy statement uh, with a simple DDL for the table and it just sucks it all in. Um, so that was it kind of, it works very well within that ecosystem. So certainly for me, this uh, ability to, to spin stuff up on demand, particularly for things like you know, ETL jobs and so on, is a bit of a paradigm shift. And it certainly avoids this issue of uh, hardware either sitting around not being used half the time or it being kind of un, you know, understrained when an ETL r routine runs and the queries then run slow and so on. And you know, did you find, for example, Robin, this would suit certain types of workload better? So, you know, for example, Elastic is quite good for ETL, but you'd want to do maybe a more permanent kind of setup for, for, you know, for your queries. And what do you think on that, really? Yeah, so as you say, ETL is the obvious one, um, particularly if you're doing periodic stuff. If you're doing kind of uh, bat, uh, sorry, um, stream processing, you wouldn't have that spinning up and down. But if you're doing once a day, twice a day, or even every hour or something, um, rather than having your capacity sat there idle, mm -hmm. or as you say, having to kind of over-provision your hardware, um, it just makes so much sense. Okay. Um, and it was interesting with the with Redshift, the... Um, loading the data into that you still have to have that running um so that just this idea that you can now decouple your compute from your storage from your querying was kind of a, a, a revelation with the, with this prototype actually seeing it in practice that you can do that yeah definitely definitely and and i mean we'll get on to that now <clears throat> so as part again as part of the, the blog post series you talked about you evaluated different query engines i think you looked at presto hive on tears and that sort of thing i mean again mm -hmm. just walk us through at a high level what the exercise was about and the technologies you were testing out in that yeah, so one of the uh, part of the scope for the the prototype was looking at can you can we query this data once we've kind of we've processed it, enriched it, and stored it. Um, what does the analytics on it look like? Um, mm. So we took the the existing queries and then made sure that they, we could run those against that data. So one of the options was we'll we'll go and load it into a data warehouse and cloud data warehouse. So we'll stick it in Redshift. That's the obvious choice. But the other one which was interesting interesting to me was well let's just write it to S3, which is kind of long term storage. You're not actually mm. paying for any compute to sit against that you're just paying for your storage um, and so we tried it with with presto uh, we tried it with uh, hive on tez as you say because they were there um, very easy to provision as part of the um, emr cluster mm. um, so this was kind of one of the the side bits that was interesting to the the project which was working with all these open source tools in different ecosystems so on amazon it's very easy to provision presto uh, hive on tez is there by default um, other stuff I'd have wanted to look at was Impala and Drill, but those you have to kind of install and configure yourself. Mm. Um, so it just like adds that additional friction to it. 
Um, and we kind of like it was a time boxed exercise, so it'd be good to get to. But um, where the friction comes in, you think, well, that's fine. We stick with the the options that are there. Um, and Presto was very interesting, and it worked well enough for it to be a plausible option. Um, the response times were were longer than Redshift. Um, but as with the Spark stuff, there was a lot of performance optimization that we could have done. Um, we did look at we did move the, the data into ORC format, which is kind of like um, the recommendation but didn't do any partitioning and all the rest of it. Um, so the response times were fine if you wanted to have your data in, in S3 long-term and do periodic uh, analyses against it, or you don't mind if you set your query running and come back to it after lunchtime. Um, you wouldn't use it for your um, ad hoc low latency querying. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, as you said there, the, the kind of major kind of paradigm shift here is the fact you store it in one format and query it with lots of different tools, really. And yeah. the fact that S3 can be, you know, a, a, a storage format just like HDFS and so on there is interesting. You, you touched on there about storage formats as well. And something I certainly found is, again, compared to the Oracle world that we came from, which was, you know, everything is just stored in tables. It's easy to kind of to query. You, you mentioned Orc there. There's Parquet and that sort of thing. I mean, mm-hmm. how, how much kind of work do you think is involved in getting that you know, performance just right and so on? Because we save time there with, with kind of EMR, but, but it sounds like it would take a lot of work to get the storage formats and working properly. What was your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, this is part of the kind of the devil in the detail of all this stuff that it's conceptually, it's great. You write it out to S3 and then you can query it with many different engines. And as you say, the, the open data formats just kind of mind blowing if you're coming from a proprietary database background um, that you can just use, try a whole bunch of different tools and see which one fits best. Um, but I think there's always going to be engineering that you have to do on top of it. And in Oracle, it's not that you don't have to do it. It's just that it's very well established what you do. You partition it, you index it, you use parallelism and so on. Whereas it's such new technologies that I think all those, uh, I'm not going to say best practices, but all of those kind of recommended approaches are still evolving and people are still figuring them out. And the technology changes so frequently that a document you find last year that says this is the best way to do it could well be obsolete. Um, so I think it's the, they bring a great deal of power, but you have to know what you're doing to take advantage of that sometimes. Otherwise, you may end up with something that's just not quite as good as what you could have done if you'd stay within the kind of the safe world of proprietary databases. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's a lot of, <clears throat> I guess, with the move to cloud, with the move to kind of Hadoop and, and analytics as a service, you know, the thoughts are that, you know, I suppose the need for skills and the need for consultancy will kind of go away. But it strikes me that, that actually there, there's quite a lot of need there for, for, for kind of understanding and, and skills around, you know, the nuances of building these kind of systems, really. I mean, I mean, well, I, I, mean so, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, so I suppose separating storage from, from, from kind of query. I mean, what does that mean in terms of how we design things and how we do things and so on for you? I suppose it means that you can be a bit more uh, refined in how you design things. So you don't have to have the default that, well, we're going to load it into Oracle at the end of it. Um, I think in terms of um, things like Kafka, when you get onto streaming platforms, you can do your transformations in different places. You could do it in Spark, you could do it in uh, Kafka streams or something like that, and then worry about how is it going to get consumed afterwards. Mm. So it's, it's this decoupling of the processing that's important. Mm, yeah, and, and you said right back at the start that one of the drivers for this piece of work was to see, in this case, whether they get rid of Oracle, you know, or, or and you, and you can insert into there any kind of database, Teradata or whatever, really. Yeah. So, so you know, it, what do you think on that? Do you think, do you think it's a case of like, yep absolutely we'll use drill we'll use whatever and what's your thoughts on this really you know do you think these new technologies are a replacement for though for oracle and so on or or is it hype or whatever yeah what's the nuanced kind of yorkshireman view on that on this really for, for me <laughs> the nu- nuanced yorkshireman <laughs> um 
I think there's a large chunk of analytics work that just can be completely replaced because I think the tools are, are mature enough now. Um, I think the interesting bit is around the how do you get the stuff in there? Do you write it by hand or do you use a tool such as ODI to actually do all of that? Not only kind of the transformation definitions, but the orchestration and management. Um, that's the um, the bit that you still need to work and support at and scale at and mm. kind of have staff that can support. Um, but in terms of platforms where you run and store this, um, I don't see a great advantage in sticking with the old stuff um, to the extent that people do at the moment. I think there's still stuff that's always going to sit on it and obviously kind of like you know, OLTP workload, that's a different mm. question. But kind of like the big analytics stuff and the stuff that we did here for this client, it was very simple stuff that was providing them great benefit in terms of the data. It wasn't, it doesn't have to be complex stuff that it's doing and it just it just moved so easily uh, onto this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in, in the last edition, though, Tanel Poda was on the uh, the show and he, he had a good rule of thumb that I thought was, was was interesting which was data that originated somewhere else that's a great kind of uh, that's a great thing to put into Hadoop you know so if, you, if you've generated the data in, a, in, in sensors or, or in kind of uh, in a transactional system then if you want, if you then want to query that data then it's great to put it into Hadoop you know but if you're if you want the transactional integrity if you want all those kind of features that's what you want kind of Oracle for and, and so on but but yeah. certainly uh, certainly I mean, what, what's your take on, on on drill I mean you've been quite an advocate of drill you've been using quite using it quite a lot um, I mean you said you didn't use it on this project because it wasn't able to be provisioned in, in EMR easily but what's your take on on drill really is that the end of kind of you know uh, formal kind of uh, data warehousing work or, or, or what really um, I don't think it's quite so much that um, I think it's it enables you to query data without having to load it into a database first yeah. um, and SQLs what I've worked with for, for so long that you kind of you look at a problem and you start breaking it down into kind of select and group by clauses in your mind automatically and so being able to take a flat file that someone's given you like a JSON or whatever and be able to query it from your hard disk is is just fantastic mm. um so yes it runs distributed and clustered and kind of huge as well um and i heard the podcast you did um about drill it was really interesting and kind of um, comparisons to impala and so on um so i've been using it on a much more modest scale which is i'm doing some work for a client you need to do some data wrangling and kind of work out what these data sets look like how can we join them and so on um and being able to run that from your laptop without having to define your schemas. Because some of the stuff with the this prototype that we did where the data is in S3, using Hive on Tez or using Presto, you still have to go and create the external table. And mm. it's all, there's such simple columns. There's not a, there's no reason why you should have to do that. It's kind of, it's obvious if you look at the, the file, what it is, which is just what, which is what Drill does. It kind of looks at the file and figures it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a massive time saving. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, th I think that, you know, certainly Spark and, and Drill, there's some interesting things there that, so for, for Drill, Drill is, is um, but you and I know a product called Indeca that, that we worked yeah. around with for a while. And Indeca was about data discovery and, and you know, quick, you know, no data being left behind and all those kind of like, you know, uh, slogans there. But certainly Drill as the new Indeca, as Hadoop's version of Indeca, is interesting isn't it because you know you can you can sit there with a copy of drill and and you can kind of reach out to all these different data sources and you can query them in place you can reach out to say hive or, or even oracle or something and bring in data you know as reference mm -hmm. data i i say i see drill as being a, a new form of bi really i don't you know it's you've got you've got impala you've got all those kind of mpp style kind of engines there but drill is a very interesting sort of data discovery uh, technology as well i mean did you have you been finding that the way you've been using it really 
Yeah, I think it's exactly that. It's just being able to poke around in the data. Mm. Um, and the kind of the whole data wrangling side of things is kind of, it's not the sexy side of, of big data work, but it's the it's what you end up doing an awful lot of the time. Mm. Um, simply, what does this file look like? How can I match this one up with that one? Um, yeah. And being able to yeah do that data discovery with what you've got. Yeah, and I think with Spark SQL, I mean, that's in a way the new data federation. If you think about what you can do with Spark SQL in the kind of hive, the, you know, the hive compatibility. You, know, you, you mentioned in your earlier on, you said that you used, I think you used Spark SQL to bring in some reference data and so on. But you know, going back to our days before of working with tools like Oracle BI, um, you know, the fact that you can bring stuff together within within Spark, reach across, join data together from different sources, I mean, that's kind of interesting as well, isn't it? Really, and it's all free as well. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's all there. It's all free. It's to play with, and um, with the open da- open uh, data formats underneath, you're not kind of backing yourself into a corner with your tool choice. You can try something out and then just try a different one against it and kind of mix and match to get the, the optimal mm. combination for what it is you're trying to do. Okay, so that all sounds brilliant, but you, you, you used a phrase earlier on, the devil's in the detail. Okay, yeah. so, 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 so this all sounds fantastic, but um, what's the catch, really? I mean, what, I mean, compared to, say, Oracle that has these kind of regular releases and, and it's fairly predictable and so on there, you know, Hadoop technology, all this stuff is just releasing all the time. I mean, how, how does that play out with customers and what, what do you think of that, really? Um, the devil's definitely in the detail um, a lot of the time so it was a, it was a two week project that we did mm. and I'll have certainly spent a day fighting with kind of Java dependencies and which versions of libraries and there was one timestamp problems that it was it was literally a dot one difference between different code bases that timestamps were suddenly written out in epoch instead of uh, character format and stuff like that that's not in a million years would oracle ever release that kind of breaking change um, without it being a big thing mm-hmm. um so oracle will, will kind of get mocked for kind of like slow releases and arguably kind of that's a shame that they're kind of slow to do things but generally when stuff comes out it works and everyone knows how it works and there's lots of education and advocacy around it whereas the pace of the change of of the newer technologies is so great Mm. that to kind of to keep up with all of them simply what they do is a challenge so Mm. to know kind of in detail how how each one works and how to best take advantage of it um there's a lot of work that has to be done each time you come to use it rather than simply well i know oracle therefore it's just rinse and repeat um, mm. It's much more, I know that conceptually this bit can be used with this bit, but do they actually play nicely together? Okay. I mean, it certainly struck me reading through your your, your post that it was kind of in between really the old days of, of, of Hadoop being something that was very complicated. I remember you and I in the past, <clears throat> you know, spending ages spinning up clusters and, and wiring it all together and so on. And, 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 you know, it struck me that it was in between that. You had EMR there, which was uh, the... Uh, which was the kind of, you know, I suppose, the easy part there. But there's a lot of kind of uh, of mucking around there as well. I mean, I don't know if you, I don't know if you saw the blog post I did on uh, on on kind of uh, Google BigQuery. I mean, that 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 again is interesting. It's even less things to kind of wire together. I mean, what, what I suppose, you know, did you read that post? Did you, what, what's your thoughts on on where I suppose Hadoop as a service is going really, and, and how it can get simpler? I think, as you say, it, the. The more simple the user interface, the the less mucking around with configuration stuff like that is going to make it more accessible. Um, the idea of going in and installing a CDH cluster or something like that, I suppose it makes sense if you've got the hardware and all, all the rest of it, and you need to maintain that absolute control over it. 
But if you can get the same functionality at a click of a button and someone else worry about it, mm. then wh why would you? Um, and there's part of kind of like wanting to understand what's going on under the covers. But sometimes you just want to get in your car and drive somewhere without being able to know how, how a piston engine works. Um, so I think more and more it's going to become more commoditized. And your blog post kind of referred to it as the kind of the Gmail moment. And mm. uh, <clears throat> I, I like your, your opening to that saying like back in the 90s, of course, everyone ran their own email servers. Or mm. if, if like me, you ran your email server. Mm. Mm. Um, which I never quite got to, but uh, but certainly things like where where you kind of you do this stuff because like technology is interesting, and like you say, a few years ago we were working on Hadoop and building our own clusters mm. because it was so new, and that was the only way you could get into it. Mm. Whereas now to do that, why would you if you can actually just have it provisioned automatically and configured automatically as well? Yeah, yeah, definitely, and I think that's a, a, a I suppose a bit of a message to consultants really out there that I think you know a lot of us or a lot of you guys because I'm no longer in that sort of area, but um, yeah, a lot. A lot of people spend a lot of time fixating on on, on getting Spark working or, or building out clusters and so on there, really. But yeah, that is in a way a bit of a solved problem, really. Now, and I think that um, certainly <clears throat> it's it's like building on layers of abstraction, really. And certainly, to my, from my perspective, you know, things like how to build, how to get a cluster sort of working, scaled out, you know, reliable, and so on. How to kind of get a data processing layer. These are things that we shouldn't still be kind of like spending ages on, really. Where yeah. it gets interesting is how we then leverage that data, as our American friends would say, and uh, <laughs> how, how we kind of build, you know, predictive analytics on it and, and so on, really. And we shouldn't have to spend all this time on, on just getting clusters working. And, and I suppose one example of this that, that is, in a way, taking it to the extreme is... I, I think I tweeted this week about um, Amazon Glue. I mean, did you? Mm. It, it, so, just for anyone who didn't read that, um, Amazon Glue is is Amazon's take on ETL, and it's kind of very interesting. You know, it's using kind of machine learning and artificial intelligence to to look at the data that's in the kind of data set you're working with and predict things like um, you know which transformations you should do and all that. I mean, very kind of interesting, really. And and again, you know, the amount of time that people like you and I spend on building ETL routines in the past uh, and just wiring column A to column B together, mm -hmm. I think that's going to, you know, we're going to move on from that. Um, or, or is it, you know, or is it just kind of pie in the sky? I mean, what, again, what's your take on that, really, Robin? Well, I looked at Glue and it looks fascinating. I can't mm. wait to get my hands on it because when I first saw it, I glanced and I saw there's a, um, a screen full of code and I thought, well, if it's just doing code and I can write code, is you're not just ending up with the same kind of liability that you have from writing it by hand. But then reading it a bit more closely and seeing that it does this cataloging of your data sets mm. and automatic categorization and the transformations, but access to the code underneath and the orchestration and management of it, mm. it kind of, it seems like, yeah, it looks absolutely fascinating. It is, yeah. And, and I think that, uh, yeah, if it works, it sounds fantastic. Yeah, and I know Oracle is working on similar things and, and so on, really. So, uh, mm. I mean, so, so, I mean, so at the end of this piece of work you did for the client, I appreciated it was a, uh, a more kind of like evaluation. But what was the kind of the final, I suppose, you know, what was the final thoughts taking away from it? And what was the client's kind of next steps really with this? Well, they were really excited to see uh, what could be done um, and kind of the, the what we put together in, in the time frame. Um, I think they were very open to this idea that um, you don't have to have uh, a relational database to do your ETL work in. You could actually just do it on demand, um, that you can store the data without necessarily storing it with the, the computer attached. You don't have to load it into a, a data warehouse. Um, so I think they're going to kind of hopefully look to, to do more of that in the future and move some of their analytic workload into that. So I suppose really the kind of reality check is that, you know, I suppose the majority of projects still going on are, uh, are still around Oracle and, and, and ETL tools and so on. But I would imagine probably the bulk of the new inquiries you guys are getting are around this sort of technology and trying to see the value and I suppose trying to see how it would fit in with what they're doing and, and, and see whether it's worthwhile for them. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think in terms of maturity, people are uh, less uh, skeptical about it. I know a few years ago, people were dismissing this as kind of as just hype. Um, I think people have accepted that it's actually here to stay and that it's not just uh, flash in the pan type stuff that it's actually got, uh, if nothing else, big cost savings to bring. Um, and it kind of like at best a great deal of flexibility and agility to give people. Okay. Um, but I think there's still larger companies are probably awesome. Uh, more established IT departments are still looking at how can they actually take what they've got at the moment and do that and take advantage of this stuff. Okay, okay. I noticed just a, just one final thing on here. I noticed on the, the blogs that you looked at QuickSight as well from uh, from from Amazon, then you BI tool. But did you actually did you try connecting uh, Oracle Data Visualization to this as well? I mean, did that work? And, and what was your thoughts on that? Yeah, so so QuickSight was something that for this particular uh, project we couldn't use uh, for various reasons, um, but we've used it um, beforehand. So in this project, we used uh, Oracle uh, DV Desktop. Mm. Um, it's got uh, support direct for, for Presto and Redshift, um, and it worked great um, just for kind of uh, completing the end-to-end picture of um, source data, do transformation, store it. Um, we've proved that we could do the uh, analyses in SQL and then actually prove that you can use it in a client-facing tool as well. So, Robin, 2016, an uneventful year, politics-wise, obviously. Not much happened over in the UK and, and the US, but certainly a lot happened in, uh, in, in, in kind of the world of BI, really. There was the Gartner report. There was uh, lots of new releases of software. And, uh, and, and I suppose some interesting things happened uh, around kind of you know, analytics and so on there. So I've got five questions, five areas I want to go through with you just to get your opinion, really, on, uh, on, on what happened in 2016. And then we're going to go on to uh, you know, what you think is, is going to be worth looking out for in 2017. So, first question, Robin. Uh, Oracle's BI focus, I think it's pretty fair to say, has shifted this year from uh, enterprise BI tools uh, like OBI 12C and I suppose kind of enterprise uh, BI software like the BI apps to DV desktop, so DataViz desktop. Um, what do you think on that? Do you think it's the, the way of the future or do you think it's Oracle's you know, last desperate throw of the dice really to stay relevant within the uh, BI market? That's a good question. Uh, I think... DV desktop is something that they had to do. Um, and I think it's actually really interesting to see the rate of development around it and the rate of releases and what they're doing with it. Um, and it seems compared to um, Oracle BI, the kind of the, the server-based one, which is uh, a fairly slow release cycle. Mm. Uh, obviously, that's, that's good that it's stable. Uh, DV desktop, I think, is every, every couple of months. Um, and the stuff they're doing with the plugins around it as well to make it... Uh, extendable with an API, I think it's really interesting. So I suppose the thing with that is how are they going to kind of the bridge the two? Yeah. Um, is is one I don't see DV kind of desktop replacing um, the main OBIE, um, but did, will they manage to transition people from DV desktop into it, or would it just end up kind of uh, filling the same role that um, you end up with single users just doing their data stuff locally and losing out on that benefit of the enterprise view? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, talk about life going in in, in kind of full circles really i mean it's um so so just for anyone who who is not familiar with oracle's own kind of yeah oracle's particular sort of desktop you know bi tool lineup um so you, you've got so obi 12c is is oracle bi 12c is the latest release of uh of oracle's kind of full enterprise end-to-end kind of bi platform really and it's something that you know you and i are probably quite famous for um, and there's a sort of saying isn't there and i think technology which is uh, technology reaches the point of perfection and it becomes obsolete and, and the great irony, I think, with OBI 12C is, you know, it's a fantastic platform, but the, you know, the, the mood and the shift in the market is, is more towards kind of desktop BI tools now. And, and DV Desktop, Data Visualization Desktop, is, is, 
is a bit like, do you remember Discoverer from years ago and, and, and tools like that that were very much kind of, uh, you know, desktop BI tools? Yeah they, yeah. they had their kind of advantages, but they were also, you know, they, they were kind of, they were silos of information and so on. But cer- certainly um, DV Desktop is interesting, isn't it? And is it something that you you and the guys at Ramid are using a lot now? I mean, is it, is it your primary kind of like BI tool or, or what really? Uh, I wouldn't say primary, but it's something that's... Um, it's very relevant uh, when we're discussing with clients. Obviously, if it's kind of like it's an Oracle shop, then you'd rather using that than a Tableau or whatever as an alternative desktop tool. Mm. Um, and the stuff that they're doing with kind of data flow within that, um, I think is equally interesting. Kind of, I, I suppose the rate at which they've developed something which runs on the desktop and yeah. under the covers, under the covers, it's still the same server processes, but it's all encapsulated to run a local machine. But then adding in this additional transformation stuff. Um, yeah, I think, like I said, how, how are they going to bridge that into back into the main product, or are they just going to end up with kind of two separate offerings? Mm, yeah, I mean, so so just explain to us what the what the data transformation thing is in there. That's in the new release, isn't it, of of, of DV Desktop? So what what's that really? Yeah, so that's where you can take um, multiple data sets and apply transformations on them as you would do in a, an ETL workflow and uh, aggregate or filter your data or join between the different data sets to produce a kind of a, um, a final data set off that against which you build your, your visualizations. Mm, yeah, I, I think it's, I suppose in a way, this is the way the market's going. And, and so uh, it, whether people like you and I would say, well, actually, you know, it's maybe the pendulum has gone too far one way, it's the way the market is going, really. And um, so, so yeah, I mean, do you think that or not? I think it is, yeah. And um, I think in an ideal world, you'd take something like that and you'd give it to your um, your tech-savvy business users who would then actually, they know the data, they could build out and kind of explain how the stuff transforms and combines. Mm-hmm. They can prototype the visualizations and then give that to the enterprise department who can then formalize it and build it into something into a kind of a supportable um, enterprise-grade ETL process. And, and that's kind of like the perfect world. Um mm-hmm. But you risk kind of going back to the days of kind of people building stuff in Excel macros and only kind of specific people in the department knowing where that data came from or how to support it. And that's kind of that's the worst of all worlds that way. Yeah, I'd be interested to see also how, how Oracle sell it as well, because the, you know, the model behind tools like Tableau, for example, is you know, to sell one license, really, to go in there, to sell one license into a, into a department. They call it land and expand, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and funny enough, I I, um, I um, downloaded a trial version of Tableau uh, this week, and for testing out on some work I'm doing with with, uh, with the place I'm working at the moment. And, and I got a phone call the next day from from uh, one of the reps, a very nice guy, but you know mm. he, he was he was he was going to sell me this kind of one 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 seat license really, and uh, oh. and and that. But you know I can't imagine someone from Oracle doing that. I mean that's you know it's it's kind of interesting. I'd imagine the paradigm shift and the rethinking thinking from from the Oracle salespeople will be quite a lot there really. Yeah, and and I'm, I try not to get too close to licensing because mm. it's always a bit of a minefield. But from what I've understood, you can't actually buy a DVD license as such. You kind of you get uh, permitted to use it as part of a DV license in the cloud or DV as part of um, OBIE on premises. Um, I guess that's a, a deliberate decision, and maybe mm. it's kind of a, a nuance that I've misunderstood. But yeah, you, you can't just say I, I think this is great. I want to license it for for Fred and accounts. You actually have to. Uh, license more than that yeah definitely but i think i think one thing that i don't in my opinion is i'm surprised at how good db desktop is really and yeah. uh, and as 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 uh, as you said you know the rate of uh, there being kind of plugins and and i think they're kind of i think certainly the development team i mean are definitely full in full in on this really and yeah. um i mean i've been using it quite a bit and and uh it's a good product but it's interesting to sort of, i suppose in a way 
it has that horse bolted or, or, or is this a necessary thing you know uh, to do I don't know it's interesting isn't it I mean, top marks for Oracle doing it but how well they'll sell it I don't know really yeah, and I suppose how much of the functionality will come back into the main product? Is it something where they can use it as a kind of a development, um, not a development, but a kind of prototyping thing to see how our features uh, take to the market mm. and then kind of um, migrate them into the, the enterprise stack? I don't know. I, th- I think I think also where, where there is potential for Oracle to do something very interesting is in is in the linking it back to the full enterprise suite. And, yeah. and, and certainly, I mean, I was at an event recently and I was with one of the Gartner analysts and certainly within, within Gartner, I guess within a lot of analyst firms, there's, there's, there's certainly a lot of different opinions about the value of, you know, what, what they call kind of bimodal, you know, development and so on there. And I think any vendor, any vendor that can, can link together these desktop tools and the kind of curation and IT adoption of, uh, of things as well mm. is going to do well. And I think Oracle, if they, if they do get that link between the, th- between the desktop tools and the, the enterprise kind of side work through, and you know, in terms of metadata curation and, and so on, that can be yeah. really interesting, can't it, really? So, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so next, next question for you. Okay, so citizen data scientists. Okay, you, you must have heard that phrase out there. Yes. And, and, right, okay. Is that an exciting new paradigm, or is it this year's uh, marketing bollocks, as we say in the UK? <laughs> as we say in the trade. Uh... Citizen data scientists. It depends how you define data scientist. I and mean, there's always been users in the business who are kind of they know their way around technology, usually Excel or maybe a bit more than that, and they understand the data and they know how to kind of uh, apply appropriate analyses to it. Um, but if you take kind of uh, data scientists to kind of like to one extreme of kind of um, advanced analytics and predictive modeling and mm. full blown statistician, then yeah, that's bollocks. Okay. Um, but, yeah. but but I think tool, hmm. tooling that supports that availability um, through to end users of something other than a kind of like a highly curated and governed model hmm. um, is good. I think users want their data, the, the, the values there to be had from that data. So letting them work with it in different ways is good. But um, yeah, there's, there's a certain element of hyper. Aspirational. Asp- I mean, aspirational, yeah. Forward looking. Yeah. Forward looking. That's uh, directional, is, I think, is the phrase <laughs> we use in product management. Um, I think there's a couple of things in that that are interesting. So, first of all, you know, citizen data scientists, obviously, you know, I mean, it, it's. <clears throat> I think to think that we will all become statisticians, we'll all become kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, really there's a lot of there's a lot of mathematics there's a lot of stats knowledge there to, to to be good at to do that well but the aspiration for people to do more than just look back at you know at what's happened in the past and to kind of use stats and to use machine learning and deep learning and so on to to get competitive advantage you know i think that's a genuine thing there really and and whether or not it, the, whether or not the tools enable it now i think that is the again a driver and a, and a kind of a demand from users now yeah and i think there's the danger with stuff like that that people have to understand what they're doing. Mm. So does the tool dumb it down so much that it becomes slightly meaningless or could be done by the tool anyway? Uh, and what role does the person have in that? Um, and I've done some work with a, a colleague of mine um, who all know, Jordan Mayer, who's kind of, he is a data scientist. He kind of like understands the maths, understands the stats. And in working with him, it's kind of, you realize and starting to dabble in this kind of stuff, how much you don't know and how wrong you can get stuff if you put the wrong interpretation on the data. Um, so it's one thing to say how many cans of baked beans did I sell last week, but it's another to kind of to build a predictive model that's supposedly eighty percent accurate. But then if you tossed a coin, it would have been that anyway, or fifty percent. Or do you know what I mean? Where you actually you've got to understand what you're doing. Um, so if you can make that as accessible to an end user as a citizen, mm. citizen data scientist mm. in a way that they can do, use it 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think um, certainly, certainly now, I think we've had enough of experts, really, in, 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 as the famous politician said in the UK. Yeah. But I think it's. Um, <laughs> I, I think the, I think certainly in the days of data mining, it was it was kind of common to sort of say, you know, it's it's too dangerous to put in users' hands because they can make the wrong decision and so on. That I think that's a kind of lazy, I think that's a lazy kind of thing to say because yes, obviously, you know, there's a lot of nuance in uh, confidence factors and, and using the right model and so on. But the challenge I think to us in BI is to say, well, actually, that's there. How can we how can we go beyond that? Really, you know, as a tool. Um, I often refer to Beyond Core as a vendor that I think is an interesting um, vision, I suppose, of where this stuff can go. Um, you know, automating it, predict, you know, making it as easy as possible to get these insights, um, whilst also, you know, I suppose, like you said, you know, understanding that you know it's easy to make come to the wrong conclusion. But I think it's I think it's lazy to say that we shouldn't put this in people's hands. But I think it's also slightly kind of um, hyperbolic to say that it's now possible. Really, um, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I think that's probably the case. Um, so, so okay. So, next one for you. Um, so, source control. You've done a, a, again a lot of uh, very mm-hmm. detailed uh, posts about uh, source control and uh, and kind of automated builds and, and and kind of automated deployments with OBI and tools like that. So, yeah. is this kind of you know is this applying engineering rigor to, to to tools like kind of Oracle BI, or is this just perfecting the steam engine? Why are you doing this? You know, surely, surely this is kind of pointless, really, with this old technology. <laughs> uh... Because as long as people are doing development work, they should be doing it right. Um, and that's not just from a kind of puritanical, I don't like to see things done wrong view, but it causes an awful lot of trouble when people don't do it right. Um, and simple stuff like source control, if you don't have source control, you're screwed because sooner or, sooner or later, you're going to lose a file or deploy the wrong version of a file or you're going to go on holiday and someone else can't find the right file. Um, so it's simply taking that and then taking it uh, a stage further. How can we use that for concurrent development? And then you need to understand how the particular software works. So it's a necessary evil in a way. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it has being, to be done. I was being slightly devil's advocate there, but but it, it's certainly it's certainly. I mean, how much do you still see people going going on uh, on site, and you see kind of RPDs in this case uh, numbered, and that's your version control. I mean, how, is oh, any of this sinking in really? Uh, for me, something that I realised was that I started off with the kind of concurrent concurrent development problem, which was in OBIE, how do you do concurrent developments without using the the, uh, the provision one from Oracle, which was slightly unsatisfactory. But then, so I wrote about that and I talked about that and didn't see a great deal of kind of, people said, oh yeah, that makes sense. But it didn't really, no one kind of, um, seemed, it didn't seem to make much impact. And then you actually go to clients and you speak to them about it. And as you say, they're, they're naming their RPDs on disk kind of like version one, version two and on network share. And so, something like concurrent developments arguably isn't for everyone. Um, Even if it would be kind of useful, um, places are so far off being anywhere near being able to do it that simply the basic stuff like use source control, um, that's the message that's kind of everyone's got to take heed of first. And then you can look at, well, let's get a bit more mature in our approach. Let's automate our deployments. And once you've done that, then you can say, actually, no, now let's do concurrent development and all the flexibility um, and agility and kind of scalability of your, of your development effort that entails. That's great. But mm-hmm. trying to leap to that one straight away when people can't even do source control is uh, it's a step too far. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Just so I guess it's a plug for what you're doing with me. I mean, what 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 are you? Are you're you're driving a lot of kind of you know utilities and, and accelerators in that sort of area. I mean, what what kind of what have you been doing in that sort of area really? 
Yeah, so we've been trying to work out what what makes sense to our clients, and do we try and do we build a solution for this and kind of like say this is how you do it? Um, but we've actually found in speaking to clients and kind of going and implementing this stuff with them that because what you're interfacing with is a lot of the time kind of like enterprise change management processes and release teams. We found that a one-size-fits-all solution just doesn't work because you start mandating upon them too much. And they say, yeah, but we just don't do things like that. Um, so instead, t- kind of breaking down the process, and that's kind of the, the recent blog post I did about that, were based around that. Kind of like, let's understand everything from the ground up, and then we can tailor particular solutions to each individual clients, what, how they work. Um, but kind of with with the um, best practices, should we say, thrown in to kind of like this is how you should be doing it, and then we can kind of uh, tailor it to fit perfectly. Okay, okay, and and yeah, definitely. And the other thing you be, you got, you've been doing as well, I know you were responsible for this when I was there, was the performance kind of, um, I suppose, performance and customer adoption stuff as well. I mean, I, I suppose uh, performance is that is that still an issue you see these days? Do people still kind of like you know tune things the wrong way, or, or what do you see? Oh my god. Really? Oh. All, all the time. Um, maybe I get a skewed view of it because I'm also on the um, the Oracle uh, OTN forums, and the number of times people kind of say, "I've got this query and it runs slow." Um, I've tried building an index on the database and it's still slow. And you just, in a similar way to kind of concurrent development, was kind of taking it too far straight away. People just need to learn how to do source control. The same way with performance, people need to understand you've got to know why it's slow and where it's slow before you start changing things. It's it's a kind of it's a very basic message, but going and looking at where is your query running slowly is it in the database is it in the bi server if it's not in the database then tuning the database is going to have no impact um so i think it's i think it's got a long way to go and i don't know it's one of those things that um sometimes the the development styles taken to this stuff performance is just an afterthought mm. people work with small data volumes and in, in development um they're more focused on the functionality than the non-functional requirements and then it goes to production and then it falls on its ass and then it's kind of oh now i suppose we ought to have a look at this and then that's just, the horse is bolted by then because with with big deployments they're very complex and sometimes you have to say look i'm sorry you've kind of you've fundamentally done this wrong um, and that's where it gets quite painful. Okay, okay. So, so number four, number four question is um, the rise of schema on read, schema-less SQL engines and data lakes. You know, is mm-hmm. this is this all about making BI agile and, and helping you know, customers embrace this new technology, or are things like schema read and data lakes is it the end of civilization as we know it? Really, you know, what's your <laughs> what's your, uh, what's your take on that? Um, I think it's fantastic. I think um, I, I think, and I heard the the um, the show that you did with Kent Graziano mm. and talking about do we still need data modelling? And absolutely, hundred percent, yes, but just not always straight away. Um, and we talked earlier about kind of the new technologies and what they enable and some of the the paradigm shifts. Um, and I think this idea that you don't have to model it up front is just um, fundamental and like a bit slightly mind-blowing when you've been doing this thing for a while and then you realize, hang on, I don't need to define my table. I can just store this and potentially just, all I want to know is the number of rows that I've got. I'm not care- I don't care about the different columns within it. Simply a count of the number of rows will suffice and it makes it much more uh, easy to get your data in, much more easy to start poking around the data. And then once you start needing to get repeatable answers out of it and uh, a more um, formal view of the data, then you model it, but only then. Um, so it makes it much faster to get your data in and start storing it and start uh, working with it and working out, is it even useful? Is there any point modeling it or is it turns out it doesn't have what we need within it? Okay, okay. And the last question from my side for, uh, for, for this one is, right, so you write a lot about breakfast, don't you? So you, uh, one, of your, one, of your, one of your topics really on, on, your, on, on Twitter for 2016, yeah. 
I think you've now got your own hashtag, which is uh, full English breakfast. Um, so for you, question for you, English breakfast or American breakfast? You know, which one is the, uh, the best and oh. give reasons why? Am I allowed to say it depends? Well, go on then, go on then. It, it, it depends is the uh, consultant's answer. Um, it's got to be full English. Um, okay. Describe a full but, English to our American guests and, uh, and, I, and, then, and I'll describe American breakfast to, uh, to our British guests. So go on. So a full English is a, is a thing of beauty. It's you got to have uh, good quality sausages, good quality bacon. You got to have good quality everything. Um, tomatoes, fried tomatoes, fried mushrooms. You got to have uh, black pudding in there. Got to have mm-hmm. black pudding. Um, hash browns are controversial, but good addition to it. Um, good granary toast or good white toast. Um, baked beans, and you've got to have HP sauce. You can't have brown sauce. It's got to be HP sauce. Okay. And, and oh, and and fried eggs. Okay. And American breakfast is fairy cakes and fat. <laughs> from what I've, what I've, what I've, what I've, uh, what I've seen. So I think actually that's kind of easy one to do, really. I think a British breakfast uh, of all, it's always the best, really. So, uh, but certainly, you know, I would recommend uh, listeners to uh, to look at your Twitter feed for the amount of uh, reviews of breakfast you have on there as well, and beer as well. So, uh, so, so breakfast and beer Hel- is healthy is diet. Good. Exactly good. Okay, so so let's kind of let's look forward to, to 2017. So these are always are kind of interesting to do, and and and. Sometimes it's quite hard to put your finger on, you know, what you think will be interesting things in the uh, in, in going into the next year. And a lot of these things already exist, and, and and they're more things that you think will kind of catch on. But but you know, we talked earlier on, and there were there were kind of um, three things that you told me about earlier on when we did the planning for this that you thought would be kind of good. And and first one's Kafka. You've been talking a lot about Kafka in the past, and Kafka seems to be coming up all the time as kind of a, a technology to watch. Um, so again, first of all, just for anybody who doesn't know the technology, explain what Kafka is very high level, okay? And tell me why you think it's interesting for 2017. So Kafka, I actually, I did a presentation at the uh, UKUG on it just this month. I've, I've memorized the opening bit, which is Kafka is a published, subscribed messaging, rethought as a distributed commit log, which is kind of what they say on all the blogs and stuff. But it's, it's published, subscribed messaging. Um, it's um, designed from the ground up to be distributed, to be highly resilient. Um, you've got guaranteed uh, message delivery. Um, so it does an awful lot of things that um, position it to underpin um, data architectures, basically, as you, you kind of like your data pipeline. Okay. Okay. So, so, and and there's so Kafka is an open source product. <clears throat> Excuse me. Kafka is an open source product, but there's also Confluent there. So, what, where where does where does Confluent come into it? And and again, why why do you think they're driving a lot of this interest in in in, in kind of Kafka? So, Confluent um, was formed by the folk who wrote Kafka uh, back at LinkedIn. Um, so they're contributing to the Apache Kafka open source. Um, and you've also so you've got Apache Kafka Core, which is the, the kind of the messaging. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got uh, Apache Kafka Connect, which is a really interesting framework that they're building around the actual messaging as a way of getting, getting data in and out much more easily based on configuration files, basically, rather than having to brew your own interface each time. Um, and they've got uh, the Confluent platform, which has got its own um, uh, commercial control center, which uh, visualizes the, uh, the configuration, the, the delivery rates and things like that. But the, the way that they're driving Kafka or the, the Apache Kafka projects going um, is taking it beyond simply messaging. Mm. Um, but they've added in uh, Kafka streams um, so you can do stream processing. Um, I saw a very interesting presentation at uh, the Big Data London conference recently where they were talking about the queryable stateful stream processing. So rather than stream processing your data and then landing it to a um, a NoSQL store or something like that, you can actually query it in flight, um, which I thought was 
interesting for how it could have kind of taken your architectures uh, in the future. Mm. Um, and then I saw, saw a tweet just this week from uh, Gwen Shapiro, I think, talking about the the kind of the pre-processing that um, is going to be coming in, in Kafka. So simple stuff uh, on the, the Kafka Connect inbound. So uh, masking credit card numbers or inserting uh, values or renaming fields and things like that. So it being a whole bunch more than simply just a messaging tool, but a, a platform in its own right. Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I see Kafka as being, I suppose, the, the ETL equivalent to Hive in a way, <clears throat> in in that, so Kafka is, is there and it's obviously kind of does a lot of things, but it's extensible. Uh, like you said, you've now got the streaming side, you've got the bits you've been talking about there as well. <clears throat> but you've also got a lot of closed source products are adopting Kafka kind of interfaces and APIs as their standard. So yeah. if you look at, um, I think it's MapR Streams, that, that is effectively their own proprietary technology, but they expose it and make it available via you know via a kafka interface effectively mm-hmm. um, yep. and i think also with the oracle um oracle public cloud or the new elastic cloud uh, product they've got a product that is 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 um you know it's a wrapper it's a commercial kind of added value thing on top of kafka as well mm-hmm. so, so certainly it looks like kafka is kind of here to stay albeit you know be it as a as a, as a standard as a kind of like a framework as well but it certainly seems to be getting that adoption doesn't it really um and and, and a key a key kind of platform enabling technology for, for hadoop really yeah definitely and, and like with the um the other hadoop um technologies whether it's an open format so mm. simply being able to build systems around kafka connecting the different components together and being able to decouple them in that way i think explains why it's getting such an uptake and with it being and one of the things that sh- uh, struck me about it after looking at it for a while is it's it's a streaming platform but it's not just about streaming um, it's also about data integration um, so even if you're not building something for streaming from the outset if you start ingesting your data um, if it's an event stream as it comes in into Kafka and then you can consume it as a batch if you want to but you can also stream process if you want to as well okay I always think Kafka is, is the technology that everybody always says they're doing in projects but actually haven't done it's one of those things you drop in there uh, as, as kind of like a, a very kind of sexy technology but it's, yeah. it's quite hard to get running though isn't it do you think and that's why I think that it's, it's actually harder than you think to get running is that correct or what do you think on that <clears throat> So to get a simple actual Kafka cluster running, it's it's fine. Mm. Um, for me, I found, as I said before, devil in the detail. Yeah. Um, and it's it's definitely for me one of these things. Like you look at the um, kind of jigsaw architecture, kind of like oh we've got this one here. I've read a blog about this one here, and there's a supposed connector between them. Um, but I recently did some work trying to connect um, to Oracle Golden Gate, great way of uh, mm. change data capture from your, your database, which can then create an event stream into Kafka. Mm. Um, I was thinking this could be a great way to kind of um, prototype populating your, your data reservoir in HDFS from work that's happening in the database. But actually, those three simple pieces don't fit together as it currently stands because uh, Golden Gates um, prefixes the, the Kafka topics with the full uh, database and schema. Mm. And if you try and write that to HDFS, Hive gets upset because because you can't call a, a table with a, the three-part name. So it's kind of, it's great. And yes, there's kind of like pull requests that work around that. But out of the box, this stuff, it still needs engineering kind of jiggling around to get it to actually to work. Okay. Um, but that, that's just a maturity thing. I think as a, as a fundamental technology, um, it's here to stay. And I think it's, it's a great piece of kit. So do you think, is, is Kafka your new log stash then? I mean, I know you've, had, you've, been, quite a fan of, you've been quite a fan of, uh, of, of the you know, Elastic stack, and we've actually got Elastic coming on the, uh, the show um, sort of in one of the next episodes. But so so, so is, is Kafka the new, the new log stash for you? 
Uh, it's certainly my new love, yeah. Um, mm. I, Elastic was great, and it was uh, it was probably the now, first. Moved on now. Yeah. But yeah, it was the first open source project that I kind of I started working with and realizing uh, the power of. Um, and I think it's great, and it supports Kafka, so it's the best of both worlds. And didn't you yarn about that as well? I, mean, I remember at the time you Elastic this, Elastic that, and it's <laughs> always been thinking about I know, it. I know, yeah. then it was drill and, and whatever really. So uh, luckily I haven't have listened to that anymore, so it's good. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, so the next one. So you're 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 from Yorkshire, and, and Yorkshire are people from Yorkshire on, is, are plain speaking and uh, tell how it is and and kind of cloud is is certainly um a uh an area that has uh, probably had its fair degree of skepticism and hand waving and, and and all that kind of stuff but something i've noticed you st- you know when you and i've talked in the p- recently we start to th- you're starting to think now that cloud can be interesting really and cloud is going to be just more than just a kind of word and more than just a kind of a sales opportunity is what do you think on that yeah, and for me, it's been probably in the last half year or something, and looking at these things, and cloud's not just marketing bollocks. And part of the problem is that the marketing, all companies do it, marketing kind of gets ahead of the actual technology. And so you try and keep up with the marketing, and then you start looking under the covers, and you think, well, actually, this is just this is just slideware, it's forward-looking or whatever. And so... Uh, the kind of the hype um, kills it in a sense mm. or kills people's taste for it. So it's like, oh, well, cloud's just rubbish. Big data's just rubbish. And I think in the same way that big data technologies are now maturing and people are realizing that it's it's serious and it's got great benefits, I think the flexibility that cloud gives and cloud in a sense is kind of a, a bad way of describing it because it's, mm. it's one of a dozen different things. But so specifically the elastic um, capabilities and the separation of your compute from your storage from your query I think that's the important thing I think kind of cloud as a, a buzzword turns an awful lot of people off there's a whole bunch of fuss about it um, but uh, fundamentally it's going to change an awful lot of things about how systems can be built mm. um, it will be and sometimes people are going to I suppose look at taking what they've got and just lift and shift it running on kind of virtual servers in the cloud which is kind of missing the point of it yes um, but similarly it's it's kind of easier said than done to say oh, we'll just rebuild it using kind of the the new technologies mm. um, that, that's that's not a small undertaking but I think to kind of like to properly benefit from it then uh, looking to to separate out your processing and decouple the parts is, mm. is going to be a good idea so when you go back to your uh, Christmas gathering in uh, <clears throat> in Yorkshire and uh, you have your whippets and your uh, flat cap you'll, you'll be you'll be having a t-shirt that says ask me about cloud on there and, and you'll be yeah, a convert definitely. you have the zeal of a convert really uh, there so uh, <laughs> exactly so so yeah interesting and i think i think cloud will actually ironically uh, outlast hadoop as being the kind of the uh, as being the thing we talk about in a few years time and i think the complexity and the you know the detail and the and the, and the, the amount of work involved in getting hadoop running and so on you know in the end this is when it moves to the cloud this is going to be it's just going to be elastic compute and storage really and um yeah. it, i think the impact on on business models will be massive but i think that um yeah definitely i think cloud will it's gone from being something that is being kind of sold and and hand wavy and so on to being something that people like you and i i think think about quite a bit now in terms of what it means in terms of how you develop systems and how you work with it and i think you know probably you and i realized the elastic thing recently and the impact that's going to have on uh on 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 kind of development and so on as well so uh yeah yeah, particularly with sorry i'm particularly with the amazon stuff and that it's all there at a click of a button and all the different pieces that you can then work with and they all interact with each other. 
Um, and before that, um, an Oracle they had a BI cloud service, which was kind of it was fine, and you could kind of do stuff with. But mm. unless you kind of you fitted that particular audience for it, it was just like oh well, it's kind of like it's it's like what we've got on premises, but it's just not as capable. Yeah. Um, and it's it's moved on since then. But that was kind of like the first uh, version of the cloud that I was exposed to. And then you can you start looking at AWS and its capabilities mm. and the options that you have for building out these different permutations of, of platforms. And it's it's fascinating and powerful. Yeah. yeah, and the last one really is is something which I, I read a, an article of yours on uh, on OTN about the Panama Papers using graph technology. Um, so so, so graph, graph is interesting. You've said and I think you said in the past. Tell tell people what that is and uh, and why you think graph technology is something to look out for in the uh, in the next year. So yeah, so this is actually uh, an idea that I stole from you because you'd, you'd written about using uh, graph analysis, property graph analysis on uh, on Twitter data, mm. um, and so I thought, oh, this looks looks interesting, and so um, took the Panama Papers um, data sets of various parties um, who have in, uh, money held in various offshore funds at various addresses, and so graph um, analysis lets you look at those and how they relate to each other. Um, beyond simply the relationships um, and it lets you build out and visualize those patterns mm. um, and also run algorithms against those so you can find out which uh, which particular address is used by lots of different funds um, but rather than doing that in SQL where you would simply have kind of like a which would be kind of like um, a count of them you could say well um, which are the addresses which have got lots of funds, which are also uh, related by uh, another set of um, properties, such as the um, the users or the countries. So it, it's a it's a completely different way of looking at the data. Um, and for me, the the visualization aspect of it makes it make a, a lot more sense. Mm. Um, but then, there, as I say, there are also these algorithms that you can run against it as well to come out with the um, the results of a, like page rank and so on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think <clears throat> for, for me, uh, you know, graph technology and the article you wrote, and again, I put the link to it on the on the show notes and the things I've been doing with it. It's a good example, isn't it, of how you can bring different querying compute engines onto Hadoop, use the same data set, you know, which might be sitting in in HDFS or in HBase or whatever, but different query engines can query it really and, and this kind of explosion in a way of of kind of different ways we can do things and different compute engines we can use and so on it sort of makes bi interesting doesn't it again i mean it's it's it, yeah it's, it's very interesting isn't it it does and it means you can kind of like pick the right tool for the right job mm. um, it doesn't have to be well the the primary focus is doing relational analysis therefore we'll have to start in a relational database and therefore can't do this other stuff or we'd have to kind of copy it all over mm. um, you can store it in these open formats it's uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I mean, so it's, yeah, three three really interesting things. Looking forward to twenty seventeen there, and and just to, just to round this up, really, um, I think certainly you're going to be at the BWA event, are you in, in January? Uh, speaking on this, yes, that's right. So I've got um, a paper on the the Panama Papers and also about uh, OBIE performance, um, and then the Panama Papers one also at Kscope in uh, uh, Texas in in June. Excellent. And I actually I'm actually doing uh, I'm taking the idea I had with the kind of the Twitter stuff before. Um, but adding the spatial side into it as well. So obviously one or two of you might have remembered the uh, the, the kettle thing that happened to me a little while ago and uh, <laughs> where, my, uh, where my kind of home automation experiments went sort of slightly uh, awry there. Um, but it was, it, uh, what I did was I, I captured all of the, um, so I captured all the Twitter activity that was happening at the time. And actually, funny enough, that was 
one of the things that brought the network down at the time. Um, but I captured all the network, I captured all the Twitter activity, and I also captured things like all of the Guardian comments and so on. And what I'm going to do in this presentation is is show how um, show how kind of you know the, the 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 posts I put on Twitter at the time about the kettle not working and so on. They started off with a few people like maybe you retweeting it and so on. But then as it went viral, um, it's interesting to see again their graph technology and network kind of you know network analysis showing how in, how you know certain influences in that group can suddenly by them retweeting it can can massively sort of explode the amount of people that are reading things and commenting it and so on. I thought that would be interesting, but also bring in the spatial and time element of it as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, again, something that, we, that made me laugh at the time was, was this something that started off as a very kind of British thing, you know, it's in The Guardian and, and so on, was being retweeted around the world, Australia and so on. I thought it'd be interesting, given the Oracle product, which is Oracle Spatial and Graph, to see how sort of time and, and geography affected it as well. And, and just in a way, like you say, be able to, be able to look at and analyse uh, data that's 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 you know tweets and so on like that that's, that's network in nature uh, in different ways that is a more appropriate way really and uh, I think graph is interesting really graph is definitely in a way the uh, the the kind of the the slightly less well known way of analysing data that actually once you get your head around it and understand it it's it's kind of really interesting and certainly the article you wrote on Panama Papers was fantastic you know I think the feedback on that was good as well. No, thanks. No, it was a lot of fun doing it. Excellent. Okay, well, it's very late now, and I'm conscious that uh, that that kind of I've been having you talking for a long time. So, thank you very much for, uh, for for coming on the show, Robin. It's been great to have you on here, and hopefully, we'll get you back at some point as well. Um, so, uh, I think in the future episodes coming up, we've got uh, we've got I think Elastic actually coming on next as the next uh, as the next kind of guests. Um, but other than that, um, yeah, Robin, thank you very much, and uh, have a good Christmas, and uh, and see you soon. Thanks very much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. Thank you.